Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning we start a new series in the book of Romans, beginning with the very first chapter. And I'm going to ask that you would stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning. We don't do it every single time, but we were, when we were in a letter like this where we have all kinds of rich information, I think it's important for us to stand and recognize the authority of God's Word and honor God and His Word as we stand together. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We're all familiar with the phrase, abandoned ship, right? Very familiar. Hopefully, none of us have heard that pronounced over the intercom while we were on a boat. No one expects to hear that phrase when they put out to sea, and it's perhaps one of the least welcome phrases that you could possibly hear when you find yourself out there on the open sea in icy water. When you leave port, your lungs are filled with that fresh, that crisp, that salt-laced expectation and exhilaration. What's out there on the edge, out on the horizon? What, what adventures await? What discoveries are out there? What treasures are just begging to be found? Of course, we all know that in the early morning hours of April 15th, 1912, all of the merrymaking and all the festivity, and all of the anticipation and excitement and the ease and the comfort and the luxury, all that abruptly turned to terror as the order was given. And all the passengers on the RMS Titanic, they began to face the reality that there were only enough lifeboats on board for about half of the ship's company, abandoned ship. Those are the worst words those people could possibly hear. But you know, as you become, become to grips with the reality that the hull has been irreparably breached, water's just rushing in faster than the pumps can pump it out, no sealing of the watertight doors is going to keep this thing from that beck and call of the black below. And you realize there's no other option. No other option. Abandon ship. Have you ever felt like the call to abandon ship was just on the edge of the horizon? It, it, you're almost there. It's so, so close. If you looked around at what's happening out there, maybe on the other side of the world, maybe somewhere in your own country, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school, it's across the street, maybe even in your own home. You've begun to think that the magnitude of the problems, 
the threats, even this, this invading poison that, that we can't seem to get rid of, it doesn't leave much room for hope. And of course, the Bible makes the issue very, very clear, the underlying problem very, very clear. There's a force, there's an enemy, there's a power that has its grip on human beings that is just beyond our ability to shake. I was at the aquarium at the Pacific a few weeks ago, startled to see a state-of-the-art interactive display that was dedicated to showing how human beings are a problem, were, were a problem. It heralded the, the, the possibility of the human population just continuing to increase. It heralded that that is a, a devastating reality. And the proposed solution was, in, in this presentation, well, we just got to stop people from having children. More precisely, it said, we need to educate young girls so that they will not get pregnant and what to do if they do. I stood there with my 12-year-old daughter and I was staring at in, in perplexity and, 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 and kind of disgust and horror at this anti-human propaganda that's just shamelessly dis displayed there for all of these young children all around me to just soak in and take as gospel Truth, but you know the reality is, is it's not that human beings are the problem. The Bible tells us that God created these human beings, and when He created them, what did He say? He said they're very good. What's more, He entrusted them with this sacred calling, didn't He? A sacred calling to be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. The real problem isn't humanity itself. It's not that they exist or that there's some sort of burden on, on our planet. The real problem that we have, the real thing that's sinking us, is that the vast majority of us are refusing to recognize as well this, this thing called, called sin. It's this turning away. It's this rebelling against the one who designed us and the good design that he put forth. Sin, as one pastor put it, it's bad news. Very profound. He writes, among its consequences are four inevitable byproducts that guarantee misery and sorrow for a world taken captive. What are those byproducts? The first one is selfishness. <laughs> Go figure hearts that are turned away from themselves, turned in on themselves. They're exalting themselves. They're prioritizing themselves above, beyond, anything, anyone else. Hearts that are held in the grip of sin. They're bent on grabbing up and consuming everything in sight for the sake of, of self-satisfaction. And they use and they abuse and they alienate and they isolate and they torment and sometimes even annihilate. And then what are they left with? Emptiness, loneliness, despair. Abandoned ship? Sin also produces this thing called, called guilt, the inevitable result of self-indulgence at the expense of, of others. It's this internal gnawing that plagues our souls, and it declares, you aren't right. It's not right what you did. We do our best to cover it up, don't we? We do our best to ignore it. We do our best to distract ourselves from it by things like shopping, 
Alcohol, drugs, entertainment, personal accomplishments. What about books that we read or people that we go to that will tell us, you're actually not the one to blame. It's all those other people that came before you that had these influences on you. But in the end, all that covering up and all that distracting, it doesn't do much for us. In fact, sometimes it even makes things worse. So we're left with our guilt. What do you do with your guilt? How much guilt can one person take? You know, we're very familiar with those people who uh, take their guilt to the very extremes, and in desperation, they go open fire on, a, on innocent bystanders. And then once they've completed their task, what do they do? Well, they're, they're, they're so overcome that they turn their weapons on themselves. Guilt is too much. Abandon ship. Sin results also in meaninglessness. Now, after we've run after all the things that we thought were going to make us happy, thought were going to bring fulfillment, we find ourselves asking, well, what was this all for? I had the opportunity to drive a $150,000 car over the weekend, very, very fast, (laughs) around a track, and it was phenomenal. And I thought about what it would be like to do that regularly, to have one of these for my own and just be like, Ah, this is, this is living, this is incredible, this is exhilarating. For how long? What's it all for? What do I gain? Does it really matter? I've got all the stuff I want now. What do I do? Abandon ship? Finally, hopelessness. I can remember my grandfather asking, one of my aunts or uncles, I can't remember who, but he said, my my mom had just declared that she was going to have, I don't know, the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth baby, I don't know what it is. (laughs) And we're not Mormon. (laughs) And he asked one of my relatives, why would anyone want to bring another person into this messed up world? No hope. Of course, we're always looking for hope. We're we're grasping for it. We're longing for it. So many of the commercials are designed to lead us to hope in some sort of way. We want to grab up some scrap of hope out there. We want to find something that we can cling to, some new candidate, some new invention, some medical breakthrough, some opportunity to give us some type of hope. Yes, so very often, what is declared to be hopeful ends up in disappointment. What do you think, abandoned ship? What would you give for one of those spots on a lifeboat? And how would you be feeling if after a week, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks of drifting there aimlessly on the open sea, you begin to realize that unless some help miraculously shows up here. This lifeboat, it, it's not the hope that I thought it was. We hoped this was hope, but not very hopeful. And this is what makes the gospel so beautiful. This is what compels this guy named Paul. He begins composing this letter to the people in Rome, and he cannot restrain himself. This letter is all about the good news. Paul's going to go into that in great 
detail. There are volumes written to try to explain what is written in these few chapters. Paul's going to explain it, yes, but here in his introduction, he can't contain his excitement. He's got to blurt it out just like you or maybe any other poor soul on one of those life rafts would blurt out the good news if you saw out there on the horizon a ship. There is rescue. We're saved. What would you say? How would, how would you describe it? In as few amount of words as possible, what would you declare to those sun-scorched, starving shipmates of yours? Here's, here's what Paul blurts out. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Who was this guy, Paul? Well, he's a servant of Christ, you say. Well, not merely an employee. He's, he's a servant, in the Greek, a doulos. In Hebrew, it's eved. He's indebted to Jesus. He's permanently, he's wholeheartedly, even lovingly obligated and enrolled in service to Jesus, this Christ that we'll talk about in just a moment. He, he can't even get one sentence out here without connecting his identity to the one he is a servant of, right? Do you see that? Everyone see it? This is an honor. This is an incredible, dignifying thing that he uh, holds very, very dear. You know, Paul could be my servant, <laughs> and he probably wouldn't be so eager to let everyone know, I'm a servant of Jared. <laughs> and actually, he's probably, let's, let's keep that quiet here. But no, he is a servant of Jesus. This matters. This is an honor like no other. And you know, at the same time, it's a humbling thing. He's not Jesus' business partner here. He's not his peer. No, Jesus is infinitely out of his league. Paul is nothing compared to Jesus. He has nothing to offer Jesus. He's absolutely and completely undeserving of the privilege and the honor of having even been at the lowest possible level of servant to this Jesus. I'm a servant of Christ, he writes. And then he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Back when we were still at home, my brothers and I, six brothers, two sisters. Uh, when I was growing up with my brothers, I'm the oldest, and one of my younger brothers, I won't give name uh, because this is not good, but uh, he'd come in, we'd all be in bed, and he'd come into our bunk room, basically, and he'd fling the door wide open, and we'd see his silhouette there in the door. And what's the, what was his pose? Something like that. You see the light illuminating behind from the hall, and he would tell us just what an incredible thing it was that he chose this incredible girlfriend, and you losers don't have a girlfriend, you know, you, you know, even my oldest brother doesn't have a girl, but I have this girlfriend, and so what did we do? We fire back. We had to fire back, and so the best we could do was, amen, you didn't choose her, you were chosen. You had nothing to do with this. Stop your bragging about what a great thing it is that you chose. The no, 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 no. She saw you, pathetic little you, huddled there over in the corner of the quad at school, and she had compassion on you like someone would a wet, shivering puppy. You were chosen, buddy. And, you know, 
that's actually kind of the same idea that Paul is getting across here. This wasn't anything of his own doing. This wasn't his choosing. He didn't go down to the Christ Kingdom recruiting office and bravely sign his name to the list. No, he was off doing his own thing. In fact, he was doing the opposite thing. He was bent on hurting Christ's cause. And God grabs him by the collar and says, I got work for you to do, buddy. We're turning this thing around. He writes, I'm called to be an apostle. Apostolos. It indicates a person who's sent out. They're sent out. As we'll see in a, next week, we're going to see that there's a general sense in which every Christian is an apostle. Every Christian is sent out. Each of them are sent out to represent Jesus to their world. But when it comes to Paul's apostleship, the word refers to this unique title of office that only has ever been held by 13 people who were specifically singled out. They were called, they were entrusted with special authority to communicate the good news and to lead the church in its infancy. What those 13 apostles taught, it was fundamental to the church. Fundamental. And the authority by which they spoke, it was, it was validated by the miracles that God enabled them to do. And most importantly, what they had been set apart for was nothing less than the gospel. It's kind of cool that the word used here for um, set apart, I won't try to pronounce it, but has the same root as the word Pharisee. As you may remember from our study in Acts, Paul was a Pharisee, set apart for keeping the law, for keeping the rabbinic traditions. But here in Romans 1, he says, he's now been set apart for another purpose, to declare the good news. He's the guy that says, look, land ho. He's in the crow's nest. We're saved. This is it. Here it is. Let me explain to you this incredible thing, this salvation that we are completely hopeless without. And what is this good news? He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That makes a big difference. The word gospel, euangelion, it means good news. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, a herald would often find himself in the village square, there to make an announcement, there to declare, good news, I have good news, euangelion, I have good news. And then he'd go on to tell them something like, the emperor has taken the throne. Or the empress has given birth to the emperor's son. You've heard good news before, haven't you? Good news. Breaking news. The pandemic is finally over. That kind of dragged on a little bit. Interest rates are at an all-time low. Gas prices are dropping. There's a two-for-one deal over at Schnitzel over there. This is good news on an entirely different level. Not just any good news. In fact, not just anyone's good news. 
I hear good news at home sometimes. My six-year-old, she bursts into the kitchen and she declares the good news that her long-lost stuffy has been found. That's great. President Biden declares that the economy is doing better than ever. Okay, that's good news. If a pop-up appears on my computer screen and it declares, one click here and you will save big, I know i got to consider the source. Where is this thing coming from? But here in Romans 1, Paul doesn't say that this is his good news. It's not his good news. It didn't originate with him. It's not the governor's good news. It's not Caesar's good news. This is God's good news. That means that it had nothing to do with any human invention. This is not a miracle cure that someone came out with and it's hitting the store shelves. This is not some brain, uh, harebrained invention that we can be pretty sure, I think that's going to disappoint us or it's going to let us down big time. Now this is something, something good that has at its origin the one who has limitless knowledge and limitless power, whose commitment to justice, flawless, whose record of goodness, of righteousness, absolute perfection. In other words, you can count on this good news. And someone may say, well, where did this come from? You know, why should this, this God you talk about, why should he do anything to help us? I mean, if we were really the ones who set off to sea on our own, if we, we set sail, we abandoned him, we went our own way, we did our own thing, we made our own mess, why should he even lift a finger to help us out? Exactly. That's another reason the good news is so, so good. You and I don't deserve it, do we? You don't deserve it. But should we be surprised by it? Maybe not. Paul writes that this good news of God's, it was foretold, he writes. He says, this, he says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In a sense, this is not new news. This is old news. This is the news that not only had God planned out long ago. In fact, Ephesians 1 tells us when, that how old is it? Before the foundation of the world, this news was prepared. Not only has it been prepared, but it had been spoken long, long ago. And that means that Paul is not some sort of snake oil peddler just waiting to make a quick buck here so he can move on to find suckers in the next town. No, 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 no. This goes way back. This is age old. This is not just some new, you know, slap a label on it, try to sell it. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophets, to the sacred Old Testament writings themselves. Didn't make this up. At minimum, there are at least 332 places in the Old Testament that refer to Jesus Christ. And most of them were fulfilled when he came, lived, died, and rose again. So in a very real sense, this is not new news at all. 
In fact, Paul would insist that, that, that those, those Jews who look back on what their forefathers uh, said back in the day, they, they were right. This goes all the way back to them. This is not some new invention. You, you don't have to get on board with any new program here. This is what it's all been leading up to, my friends. And you and I need to be aware that this gospel that we're talking about is not a recent idea. It's not merely 2,000, Christianity, 2,000 or so years old. This is the main plan. It's been in place before anything else, before anything went wrong. You or I or any of our ancestors were even here. Old news. And that is very, very good news. And who's this about? Well, we've already hit that. The cat's already out of the bag, right? It's about Jesus. Paul writes that God's good news is concerning his son, who's descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when I was younger, reading the Bible for Awana, I would glance over something like that and say, yeah, 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 I know, I get it. Move on to something interesting here. This is powerful. And if you think that we're winding down here in the sermons, about to end here, we're just getting started. This is, this is the main point. This is the big thing. This is the good part. Our ship is clearly sinking. Doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to figure that out. We're headed to the bottom. Davy Jones is waiting. He's down there, so I'm told. Who on earth could turn this thing around? We're a people that is addicted to pleasure. We're enslaved to satisfying ourselves, even at the expense of others. We're riddled with guilt. We are deflated by meaninglessness. We're trying desperately to fool ourselves that there's somehow hope out there somewhere, but deep down inside we know uh, we're, we're not sure there is any. Who can save us? Paul basically asked that same question. If you're here last week for our reading service, you heard him say it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who? None other than the Son of God. And someone says, wait a second here. This Son of God thing, it trips me up every time. I don't get this. Jesus is supposed to be God himself, right? Mm-hmm. Son of God, you see, you have a big problem here. Doesn't Jesus claim to be God? Yes, he does. He says, I and the Father are one in John 10. In John 1, he tells us that he, he was with God in the beginning and was God. Yet at the same time, the Bible also teaches us that Jesus was and is the Son of God. Paul writes here, he was descended from, from David according to the flesh. Here's the thing. If Jesus was going to fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies, Jesus had to be a descendant of the great Israelite king David because that's what the Old Testament says the Messiah was going to be. 2 Samuel 7, Proverbs 89, I mean in Psalm 89, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, it goes on and on and on. And he was a descendant of David. On his mother's side, he was a descendant of David. So he was on his legal father's side. 
a descendant of David. And if you ever look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew, and you see the genealogies here, they're not there to fill page space. They are there to let you know something, that this Jesus, he is the one who fulfilled the prophecy. He's a descendant of the great King David, yes, by both lines here. If Jesus was going to be the Savior of the world, if he was going to specifically rescue humanity from its captivity to and guilt of sin, he was going to have to be in a really very true sense a human being himself. It was humanity that sinned against God, was it not? It had to be a human who was going to pay for that sin. And so when it comes down to his humanity, he literally became God's son. The second person in the Trinity was not always human. He became human. He was a real human being, miraculously born because of God. But the Savior of the world couldn't be human along with all of our faults, could he? Couldn't be sinful humanity. He couldn't carry his own sin. You see, if I'm guilty of a crime myself, and I want to pay for the crime of someone else. I can't go to prison and pay for someone else's crimes because I'm in prison for my own crimes. It just it doesn't compute. It doesn't work. In the same way, for Jesus to make payment for the sins of the world, he had to be human, yes. But he also had to be free of sin himself. He had to be perfect. He had to be truly good. And Jesus himself said in Mark 10... No one is good except, who? God alone. And so to accomplish this great rescue, the only one who was perfect takes humanity upon himself that he might sub in, if you will, that he might take our place. And that's what Philippians 2 tells us. He himself emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is called the hypostatic union. You can throw that one on your friends over at the coffee shop this afternoon. Sound really smart. I learned something today. Hypostatic union means, simply means this. Jesus is one person. He's not two di different persons. It's not that there was a human Jesus and a God Jesus, and they were just hanging out in the same body. That's not the way it works here. There's one person. This blows our minds. Two natures. One person, fully human, and fully God. Now, it wasn't necessarily widely known throughout most of Jesus' life that he was the son of God. It was clear he was a son of God man of, of humanity. Okay, yeah, he's a human just like we are. Not, not very clear that he actually was this Messiah, this, this son of God. Yes, it could have been verified that he was a descendant of David, but whether or not he was God's anointed one, the Messiah, God in the flesh, well, there was some room for debate there. But Paul writes that once he rose from the grave, that's another story here. He says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection 
from the dead. In other words, when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's when everything became clear. And people went, son of God, that's who he is. It's undeniable. That has to be who he is. It's crystal clear that this Jesus is not just a man anymore. A real man? Yes. Not merely a man. No longer do they see him in weakness and lowliness. He's, he, they saw him get tired. They must have seen him get sick at some point. They saw him get hungry. Now they see him in power. Undeniable power. This was God become man. This is God's son. The son of David, son of God. And Jesus' life, death, resurrection, it puts on display this incredible reality of who he was. One pastor puts it very, very well, calls out a few different things. He writes this, in his humanness, Jesus was exhausted just as every person becomes exhausted after a hard day's work. Yet, in his divinity, he was able to instantly calm a violent storm. As he hung on the cross, Jesus was bleeding and in severe agony because of his humanness. Yet at the same time, in his divinity, he was able to grant eternal life to the repentant thief who hung nearby. This good news of God's is that the Son of Man was at the same time the Son of God, whom God raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that means, that means that when you see the signs and you hear the alarms, that order coming over the intercom, you come to the reality that there really is no hope out there to be found. You hear it's time to abandon ship. That's when you have to know there is, in fact, good news. Great news. And it's found in none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. The only adequate rescue ship is Jesus Christ our Lord. That he is Jesus, if you know what that name means, you know what I'm going to say. It tells us that he is the means by which God saves. God saves Jesus. That he is Christ. It reminds us that he is God's anointed one. He's the special. He's the Messiah that everyone had been waiting for. That he is our Lord. Well, that means that he alone is sovereign ruler of all. Is Jesus good news for you? Is this where your hope is found? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it declares to us the awesomeness of your great plan planned out before the foundation of the world. 
your intricate plan, your perfect plan. Lord, we try to get our minds around some of the elements and, and we start to get to fumble around and get tripped up. The gears start to lock in our heads. This hypostatic union, only you, Lord. Only you, Lord, could create something so magnificent as to take on human flesh yourself and become lowly as a servant humble and weak that you might save us. Lord, we love you. We look to you. If there are some here this morning, Father, who have not yet trusted in you, embraced the hope of Jesus Christ, Lord, would you lead them to yourself that they might believe, that they might embrace, that they might know hope and peace and joy on a scale that is otherwise unknown and be in awe of their one and only hope. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.